I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I'm Angie Chuck. Hi, I'm Ricky Lake. I'm Dr. Aaron Eugwin McMorrow. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm James Goodlatte. I'm Kyle Kingsbury. I'm Lily Nichols. I'm Mark Groves. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Jesse Golden. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm Marin Green. I'm Kelly Brogan, MD. Je m'appelle Rick Safries, et c'est le podcast du gynécologue holistique. Hello, I'm Paul Check, and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. Enjoy. My guest today on the Holistic OBGYN Podcast is Kyle Tierman. He's got a very popular podcast, the Kyle Tierman Show podcast, where he has interviewed everybody from Kelly Brogan to Christopher Ryan, who's the uh, author of Sex at Dawn. We talk a lot about Chris Ryan in the in the show because he's been such an influential mentor to Kyle. Kyle started off in Santa Cruz, a family of surfers, the classic story, California kid kind of story. And spending so much time among the redwoods and the oceans, he uh, quickly started intellectualizing his role in the environment, uh, given that he is paddling through oceans that are often cited as uh, polluted and watching the, the degradation of, of, of plant matter, animal matter of all sorts. He's turned him his, his eye towards, you know, wh- who's responsible for this? It can't just be the individual that's doing all the beach cleanup, not working hard enough, right? Like who is actually doing this? Who's polluting the planet? Who's destroying this beautiful place that I got to grow up in? And that turned him to quite a bit of activist work and led him to also start uh, or co-found with Chris Ryan the Motherfucker Awards, which was a comedic a comedic protest, let's just say, whereby famous comedians and journalists were issuing and then accepting awards on behalf of the largest companies in the world. Uh, he tells the story of J.P. Morgan Chase, for example, their roles in destroying society, essentially. It's quite funny. It's quite funny, Kyle's whole um, approach to activism. But then he he slowly then developed uh, into a journalist. He's working at Mudwater. He's got a couple places you can find his writing, Trends with Benefits uh, through Mudwater. And then he's also got a Substack, which I'll link in the the show notes here. He's been inspired by incredible independent journalists like Matt Taibbi, which are... which are not a dime a dozen anymore. I mean, they are far and few between these truly investigative and journalists that have integrity. And and what we get into in this episode, and the reason I had Kyle on is because he's Kyle's young. He's also extremely intelligent and very thoughtful about the world. And when we get into the role of corporations and uh, political systems in changing the landscape, let's say for birthing women or people going to the hospital wanting to feel safe, we talk about the the high CEO pays and he and I actually differ in our in our approaches to changing the system. I feel like we need to build a life raft and leave these systems alone because I don't think that they can be changed. I've become maybe disillusioned or cynical over the years. Perhaps he thinks that we still have hope through our current existing political structures, albeit perhaps putting some brakes on campaign financing and, and passing some statutes and, and codifying those statutes into law that, that might make it more fair for the little people of the United States to elect officials that are going to really hold near and dear the the values that Kyle and I both share. This is a wide-ranging conversation. It's very atypical from some of my other shows, but I do think that these voices are are critical. You know, we need to be bringing people in from all walks of life, with all backgrounds, with all 
experiences if we really want to see the emergence of a new earth. So I was super stoked to have Kyle on the show. We do get into some, we get into some psychedelic stuff as well. And, and um, Kyle takes care of himself. And um, as a listener of the show, you know, we've got a couple sponsors. So I definitely need to mention Fit for Birth. If you go to getfitforbirth.com slash beloved, you'll find my page there. I've partnered with them because they're the longest standing pregnancy and female focused exercise program in the country. And what I mean by that is there's all these physiologic changes, these anatomical changes that happen in pregnancy. And if we can get you moving well, we can get you eating well, et cetera, that's James Goodlatte's wheelhouse at Fit for Birth, then you're going to have an easier pregnancy. You're going to have a faster recovery postpartum. You're going to have a lesser likelihood of developing hypertension, diabetes, diastasis recti, bad perineal lacerations, placental issues, fetal growth issues, et cetera, all by relatively inexpensive, but very focused, holistic lifestyle coaching, for lack of better terms, through the lens of exercise, nutrition, etc. So if you can find a really a, a highly tuned fitness professional that knows how to do this, then you're going to also be way better off because there are some things that you need to know about training pregnant women and postpartum women. So fortunately, Fit for Birth is here. James Goodlatte was on my, on my show a couple of weeks ago. Please check that episode out because James is a compendium of knowledge. He trained with Paul Check in the Institute, the Check Institute, years ago, and he's built something very, very special. So it's my pleasure to be partnering with them. Go to getfitforbirth.com slash beloved, and you'll save 20% on any of their coaching programs. If you're seeking coaching yourself, or if you're a healthcare professional out there, fitness coach, childbirth educator, whatever, and you want to actually improve your practice and be able to cater exercise programs to your pregnant clients, you can also get courses there in order to improve your knowledge and understanding of this stuff. And then of course, full well fertility, they make the, they make the best prenatal vitamin on the market. There's a reason they've been featured and in, 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 in honored by a couple pretty big time publications, Very Well Family, Healthline, Prevention. They've all ranked full well's prenatal vitamin at the top. And, um, and so their highly acclaimed prenatal vitamin is coupled with nervous system support through their Nourish Nerves Tonic, um, helps with calming, relaxation, sleep, etc. And remember that 40% or 50% of people that are struggling with conception, fertility, getting pregnant, it's due to you guys, the men out there, who are contributing sperm to this whole equation. And decades ago, hundreds of years ago, we had plenty of sperm swimming around with every time, every time that we ejaculated. Nowadays, you know, we've, we've set a very low bar, 30 million sperm per ejaculate used to be 150 million. And of course these numbers vary, but the bottom line is we are not as viral men as we used to be. So if we want to be able to support the conception journey, we also have to be caring for men's health. So there's a special, they have a special compound just for men's virility as well. And all of those products will come at a discount for listeners of the show. If you enter code beloved 10 at checkout, um, you'll save 10%. So that's fullwellfertility.com. Use code BELOVED10. You'll save 10% on any of their products, most notably their prenatal vitamin, which is excellent. And by the way, if you want to know a little bit more about prenatal nutrition, check out my interview recently with N Lily Nichols. She's an RDN, wrote Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. We talk actually about Full Well and how great their vitamin is in that episode. So, so please support our sponsors. They support our show. They keep me running here. And it is so much fun to continue doing this. All right. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Kyle Tierman.
Kyle Chairman, welcome to the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. I'm so happy you're here. Uh, for those who don't know your story, why don't you give like the elevator speech? Because I know you've, you've probably gotten tired of telling your background. Uh, but yeah, yeah, give us what we need to know. <laughs> I'll, I'll see if I can get it done in 20 seconds. I uh, <laughs> grew up in Santa Cruz, California, youngest of five. All my big brothers and sisters surfed. So it was sort of a religion in our family. At a certain point, in Santa Cruz, learned that surfing was not the end-all, be-all of existence and started uh, thrashing about and flexing my intellectual um, curiosity, for lack of a better word. Fell in love with podcasting, fell in love with writing, uh, have hosted my own show for the last five years, um, and now work as a writer at a company called Mudwater. Right on. I mean, I feel like that's great. So you're in LA now, um, in Santa Monica specifically. I did all my training yep. out in LA and I got to say, I'm a little envious of waking up and seeing palm trees every day. Also, I, I did my fellowship in San Diego and we had a palm tree like right outside of our window. And now we've got locust trees and cicadas and all that other stuff. But you're living in a part of the world that's really, really confronting on many levels, right? You've got this huge poverty issue. You've also got some really incredible environmental issues that are hitting Southern California. I mean, granted, it is a desert. We're piping in water probably from somewhere else, right? And we are packing in more people per per square foot than we are in many other cities. So, so your you, you know your history as an activist turned writer journalist, I think, is really relevant. The way I f I first found out about you, about you, of course, was through your podcast. But through that, I found out about the Motherfucker Awards. So, uh, talk a little bit about your approach to activism through the lens of the Motherfucker Awards, and uh, and we'll go from there. <laughs> sure, I uh, co-created uh, a satirical awards show called the Motherfucker Awards, where we celebrated corporations that fucked Mother Earth, and we got professional comedians to deliver. Academy Award style acceptance speeches as the representatives of these large corporations. And then we got uh, journalists to present the awards. I co-created it with a buddy of mine, fellow podcaster named Chris Ryan. Mm -hmm. He wrote uh, the book Sex at Dawn. He wrote a more recent book called Civilized to Death. Really amazing thinker and mentor of mine. A few years back, when I was living in Santa Cruz, I reached out to Chris and I said, Hey, man, would love to have you on my podcast. And he said, uh, No, I actually said, That's not true. I said, Hey, I would love to be on your podcast. I was, <laughs> I was still young That's and <laughs> trying, to, trying to grow my audience. And he, he responded by saying, um, Normally, when people promote themselves to be on my show, I assume they're self-promoting self dipshits and I delete the email immediately. But in your case, it seems like you're up to some interesting stuff. Sure, let's do it. He invited me down to his house in uh, Topanga Canyon, where he, he no longer lives, but he was renting this sweet little cabin up uh, old Topanga Road, which for those people who don't know, Topanga is like the hippie hollow of Los Angeles. It's just outside the city limits and is home to some damn cool nature. Um, you can get lost in Topanga Canyon up these rad hikes and mountain bike rides, um, little creeks flowing through it. And Chris just lived up there when he was writing his, his second book, Civilized to Death. He invited me up and we just developed a really cool relationship i he 
he's such an iconoclast. Hmm. Everything that he does, he's questioning the premise. And that I think is the lesson that he really taught me through our friendship. It was just question the premise, Mm. reject the frame that's given to you. And it was always over a few beers and we would just chat late into the night. I would crash for weeks on end in his uh, big red um, sprinter van that he now calls Scarlett Jovanson. (laughs) (laughs) And 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 through that, he was also really kind and he was introducing me to some pretty well-known podcast people, you know, in that in the the podcast world is full of iconoclasts. And I was just felt like I was, you know, taking a fire hose down the throat of being able to think differently. Yeah. And one day I remember we were walking on a hike to this spot called Red Rocks in in Topanga and it was about nine in the morning and it was uh, Earth Day. And we were talking about what a bullshit holiday Earth Day is because it's so self-congratulatory. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But Mother Earth is losing. Yeah. So why we should be celebrating the winners, like the ones who are really fucking up Mother Earth. <laughs> we should have a day that celebrates them. It just, he came up with the name. He's like, the the motherfucker awards and i was like ha ah, that's just that's so funny but it was like nothing's ever going to come from it you know it's a lot of work to put on an awards show but i was young and had the motivation and he had the connections and he's like dude if you want to put this thing together i'll get all the right people in the room and help blow it up so for the next year as a a side project of mine i raised money i got you know, a set designer, film crew, rented this this rad uh, theater in Inglewood, which is um, kind of a, a lower income part of LA, uh, mostly people of color. And we threw the motherfucker awards. We got Matt Taibbi, who's a renowned journalist, yeah, to, fl- to fly out and present an award to um, Chase Bank. If you know anything about Matt Taibbi, he's really gone after big corrupt banks in the past few years. Yeah. Griftopia. Yeah. Griftopia was one of his big books. Yeah. Great book. Mm-hmm. So he, he presented an award to uh, JP Morgan Chase Bank, which is the largest financier of dirty energy globally. We got these two very well-known comedians, Moshe Kasher and Natasha Legero, to mm-hmm. accept the award. And their whole bit was that they were the brother-sister heirs of jp morgan chase and they were in an incestuous romantic relationship and the only thing that made them horny was financing dirty energy <laughs> coal coal power plants and whatnot yeah <laughs> so we we just gave these great comedians facts about their corporations and said go for it, it hit it hard but the the main point of the whole night was the more the audience cheers or the, the corporations will feel feel their love, um, you know. So we had we had uh, Simon Rex. Some people might oh, recognize that name. He's he's an awesome guy. Like who has this alter ego called Dirt Nasty. Um, we had him go up as the representative of Purdue Pharmaceutical, which really kicked off the oxy epidemic. Yeah, you know, marketing it through the '90s as non-addictive giving it to doctors, providing incentives for them to overprescribe these pills. 
you know, so his whole thing was like, Purdue Pharmaceutical, your pain is our gain. <laughs> and we had these big awards and the, the whole the whole audience, you know, there's 500 people in the audience. They're just cheering and laughing. Yeah, woo! And it was such dark comedy. But I think that on the, something beneath that was, there was a kind of cathartic rage that was mm. taking place that night. And I was really proud of that because I think that tone is, is everything when it comes to the success or failure of any project, any brand. It's all about the tone. And I think that often in the environmental world, there's this kind of sanctimonious, solemn tone. It's it's like you need to be serious when you're talking about serious issues. Yeah, we don't joke about the doomsday. Yeah. yeah. Would never, yeah. yeah, would never joke about the doomsday. Would never even use the word fuck. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is a huge amount of people out there who care about the environment. Like that's a that's not a should not be a controversial issue. Wanting clean water, wanting right. clean air, wanting your kids to be able to like go out have to worry about an asthma attack like that's pretty that should be pretty bipartisan but i think that what happens is a lot of people don't want to engage in they don't want to consider themselves environmentalists because they don't identify with the environmental movement yeah so getting someone like dirt nasty to go up on behalf of an issue like this it kind of just made it badass and fun and that's what I hope that the, the project could be as an offering ultimately to the environmental movement. My activistic lens, I told you a little bit about, that, about this before we started recording, but I, you know, I, I went into college sort of like a, a more conservative thinker. And I'm talking like red versus blue. I'm not saying conservative fiscally or anything. It was sort of like, you know, if I'm going to work hard, I don't want people to take my money. And it's it, sort of that idea. And then when you actually go out and see the world, when you get out of your little bubble in your white upper middle class high school, you know, suburb. Uh, I took a, a trip in college on semesters. I was a Spanish major. And um, ultimately, of course, I went to medical school and everything else. But on this trip, you know, you go to Brazil and you're like in some really some of the favelas outside of the major cities of Brazil or you're and you're not on like a tour bus. You're like walking around realizing like, oh, my God, I should probably not be here by myself. I mean, like it was you stand out like a sore thumb, but you actually get to interact with people and see the beauty in the world as well. And people are offering you food and they're dancing with you. And like, you're a part of the community. When you realize, you know, South Africa, India, Burma, I mean, like the places we stopped along the way, it was almost as if the trip was geared towards getting you to just kind of wake up to the the reality that there's some some really important issues out there. You know, I got back from that trip and thinking about a grand apartheid and thinking about the favelas outside of Brazil, and it flipped my political script altogether. It was like we gotta, we gotta get our allies in line, right? But then you start going to conferences on, on you know, ecological destruction or conservation. You're right. There's this sort of tone of just sorrow and remorse, and we're just mourning the loss of the earth, which we haven't even lost yet. So it's not, it doesn't inspire you like a trip around the world does. And I'm also not saying that everybody has the resources to go on a trip around the world. Don't get, don't get me wrong. But then I went through the medical process, the training process, and you get out of that and you're like, God, how are we possibly going to change this? I mean, we are talking about giants. I mean, JP Morgan Chase is probably the biggest bank in the world, I'm guessing. Yeah. And, and still 
if we continue to just beat our heads against the keyboard, trying to convince them that here's the data, blah, 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 blah. Nobody really, like we are all informationed out. We're getting information in our ear holes all day long. But if you get me to laugh, suddenly I pay attention. <laughs> and I actually think that your podcast has that tone. I mean, you're taking important topics. And, uh, and I do want to talk a little bit about your activism work before the Motherfucker Awards, because you've actually, as a, a very young man, you, you really took a plunge into trying to get some change in the world. But when you hear, you know, when, when you hear somebody with a different tone, like let's even talk about midwifery care or the way that women are cared for in birth, which you and I just talked about a little bit on the podcast. If we're just going to continue to like go with our torches up to the doors of Kaiser or whatever big hospital system, like you're just going to get flicked away. Like it's just not, it's just not impressive. But if you have a whole bunch of people cheering for the, you know, no pain, <laughs> the, the, you know, pain of Purdue is, uh, is our gain or whatever your, your pain is our gain. That has a slightly different, uh, uh, sort of qualifying aspect to it. The essence of comedy, the essence of the lightheartedness while still talking about important, in, in, important, um, topics, I think is, is so critical. And for me, it's like, I have just burned myself out on, on activism, you know, and the one thing that I can do right now is make sure that the person who I'm caring for at this very moment is getting the best care possible. And that has a ripple effect because then somebody else here is like, oh, there's a different way we can do this. So we can, in some ways, we have to demonstrate for people that like, hey, that doom and gloom of the Michael Moore films or whatever else, like that's important too. But there's a different way, like we can actually get into community link arms and we actually become allies here and have some fun while we're trying to figure out how these big, big corporations work. I do think that one thing that you and I differ on, and I'd love to have like a, a, a respectful disagreement, is that you're still hopeful that the political, the bicameral political system that we have and its checks and balances are going to keep these big corporations sort of at arm's length and keep them uh, in check towards this goal of curbing ecological catastrophe in your case. I would also apply that to the big pharma. I would apply it to big med. I would apply it to the giant medical industrial complex. So convince me otherwise. Like why have I, I mean, I've become cynical about it. So what has it, what have you seen that has actually grabbed your attention that, Hey, maybe there's still a chance here that we can change this through the, the statist kind of political governance uh, procedures. Sure. One thing I wanted to touch on is just the last thing you said about tone and this evolution that I had from doing my young activist work to now, because I think that'll yeah. maybe inform the the second answer. From the time that I was like 18 to 24, I started a, a YouTube documentary series called Surfing for Change. It was all based on traveling to coastal destinations around the world and covering environmental issues. Pretty young, I got sponsored for surfing, wanted to be a pro surfer, and was able to get on uh, the Patagonia team. So they were supporting me wow. at the time to travel around and, and really learn about a lot of these issues. It was a lot of fun. I was thrown into the fucking frying pan, not knowing how to tell one story and having to figure it out as you know, build the airplane as you're falling off the cliff, so to speak. So I was really grateful for that. But if I look back at any of those videos now, I sort of uh, engenders this, this feeling of bile that comes up in my, <laughs> my throat because I was so fucking sanctimonious. I was just so like, we need change now. And you know, young 19 year old, like, just believe in yourself. 
how you know start with what you love to do like all these yeah fucking yeah. platitude platitudes we've, <laughs> uh, we've all been there yeah it takes coming coming to that i think that what i've i've really come to when it comes regarding the issue of tone and how i've shifted it is this insight that really sticks with me never forget that you always need to be persuasive and i think that a lot of political movements today forget that i think that in their essence a lot of the quote unquote you know wokesters are fighting for ecological and and social issues that like at their core yeah we all agree that these are issues that we need to work on but how you take that argument on and the the tone that you use is is everything and i think that it's fundamentally different from the 60s environmental and social movement where you had this galvanizing figure like Martin Luther King who was speaking in a way that made people feel like we're bringing you into this conversation where you bring you into this circle you had musicians like like Bob Dylan who who were bring, who made abject racists feel uncomfortable for not participating in it. Mm. Martin Luther King would say things like, we're all brothers and sisters of God, and some of our brothers and sisters are not being treated with the same dignity as others. That's, that statement yeah. is yeah. so magnetic. And I think that what has really been missing from the current movement, which is, is on, its, on the face of it, fighting for the same kinds of issues, is the way that they are talking about it and it makes people you know like me who i'm like dude i've been i feel like i've been fighting for a lot of this same kind of stuff for the last 10 or 15 years makes me feel so alienated from even wanting to get involved so that's the first thing that i have really come to over the last long while of being in these movements is that you always need to be persuasive yeah yeah. And I think that comedy is a very persuasive medium. I think that podcasting is also a very persuasive medium because we're not shouting at anyone telling them what to do right now. We're just having a an honest conversation and people can kind of take from it what they will. So that's the first thing that I've I've really learned. Through the, to tackle the second part of your question around the role of government moving forward. I think that our system is fraught with problems, but government is the only mechanism we have to keep corporate polluters from taking over completely. Right. So the perfect role of government is to enact the will of the people into law. That's, that was what it was really founded on. Now, we've had a lot of things happen since the founding fathers, such as regulatory capture, where now if you want a politician to do something for you, you essentially have to pay them. And corporations like J.P. Morgan Chase, like Purdue Pharmaceutical, have a lot of these politicians in their pocket. And they have way more money than I do, for sure. Maybe not you, but they have more than me. (laughs) They have way more. Yeah, exactly. But I think that the next thought there is not, well, government's the problem, so we should take it out 
we should make it smaller. Because once you start doing that, it just creates a situation where there are now no checks and balances to make a a corporation with a sociopathic business model pollute and pollute and pollute and ultimately shift the burden of cost onto the people. That is really what has been that has been one of the primary motivations of polluting corporations over the last 50 years is shift the burden onto the people. So your taxes and my taxes get higher to help the environment and their taxes get lower and lower. And the belief is put then onto individual responsibility rather than corporate responsibility. So an example of this is some people might be familiar with, if you're old enough to remember it, I'm certainly not, but I learned about it, is in the 1970s, there was a really well-known ad called the Crying Indian ad. Mm. So around, around this time, and plastic pollution was sort of just becoming apparent because all of a sudden we were engaging in this disposable economy at a scale in which people were starting to see litter everywhere. People were starting to get pissed. So there was this, this ad that showed this, this crying Indian in this canoe and he's, he's uh, boating through, he's, he's rowing through this river of plastic. And at the end of the commercial, it says, People start plastic pollution. People can stop it. And it was funded by this organization that coined the term litterbug, which Mm. people are probably very familiar uh, with. What they didn't say in that ad and what most people don't know is that that organization that on its face was fighting plastic pollution was funded by Coca-Cola. And the whole push was to have the onus and responsibility of plastic pollution be put on the people who bought the product rather than the corporation that was producing the product. Because if you look at a product like plastic, you are using the product for maybe, I don't know, 10 minutes, and it's going to last for the next 10,000 years. And it has this huge consequence on society. Like as a surfer, I see it more than just about any other group. And I believe that a corporation should have to bear more of those costs. And I think that that's it's important to hold for people to hold corporations to that fire because they have more power than nation states at the at this point. And I think that although there is a huge amount of corruption within our government, still the idea of voting for politicians that will enact your values ultimately is what politicians are. Ultimately, politicians still need votes. And I think that where my mind goes when you say, okay, well, how how do we fix this? It's not, well, we need to make government smaller. It's we need campaign finance reform. We need to actually get engaged, get active, and start understanding the mechanisms of government more. Um, I, I think that the solution is not to throw our arms up and just be like, well, government's corrupt, so let's just make trash it smaller. It. I, let's trash it. Yeah. I think it's yeah. to to get more involved. And you know, I would love to see someone create a podcast on how government works yeah. from, right. from the state, state level to the local level. Right. So that's where I currently stand. And it's 
it's always evolving, man, because I, I'm really not, I don't have an ossified view of government and how change happens. And I am not, I don't pretend to, but that's what I think so far. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, I don't necessarily disagree with you. In fact, if we're going to have, you know, the, the sort of American dream as it's called, which is a farce, you know, where you have the right to make as much money as possible at the expense of the masses, right? The Jeffrey Bezos, the Bill Gates, whatever. I have a hard time believing whenever we take a step back and we look at, let's say Bill Gates, right? He's everybody's favorite, you know, public enemy. Maybe Jeff Bezos is up there with him. I think everybody has this idea, and, and this is an idea that's propagated by films like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, that there's a good and evil, and these are the evil doers, right? It couldn't be me and how I'm living my life. It must be these evil, horrible people, Who, whoever's the head of you know, J.P. Morgan Chase. They're all out there on a yacht somewhere in the Indian Ocean fishing and just cackling, you know, like, like uh, Mr. or Dr. Evil style, you know, like, we're going to take over the world. I think some people believe that, and maybe they have good reason to believe that. I don't. I have a hard time believing that part because I actually think that Bill Gates, even if what he's doing or Jeff Bezos, even what he's, even what, if what he's doing is not helping create a better world, I don't think he's at home like, <clears throat> what am I going to, what's my plot today, Pinky? You know, like, I don't, I don't think that that's happening. I actually think that Bill Gates probably actually thinks he's doing good, which actually is even more confronting. It's like, bro, can we just take a step back? And look at this together. And don't get me wrong, Bill and Melinda Gates have donated a lot of money worldwide for various projects. And I get that. But this idea of good and evil also doesn't force us to look in the mirror to realize that our own behaviors and actions, even the way that we treat the lady who's checking us out of the grocery store or the guy who cut us off and we're going to give him a finger, you know, my wife always says, what if, he has, what if he's about to poop his pants? Just like give him a break. And I mean, that's a really, she's like, yeah, or maybe they're in labor. Like we've raced to the hospital with a baby on the way. Um, maybe that person who cut you off isn't a bad person, but we love seeing that I must be good. And that person out there who wronged me must be bad without a nuance, without context. And I do like how your approach, which is like, here's, here's the, the system whereby we may be able to improve things. But then you also look at all this nuance and gray area in the middle. And that's really where the magic happens. If it's just a matter of good and evil, then like I had said before we started recording, the idea that bringing our CO2 emissions down is going to save the world. Well, that's not exactly true if we're going to continue using and consuming as much stuff as we possibly can while the getting's good um, and coming up with magical ways <clears throat> to utilize more energy now that it's CO2 emission free or whatever else. Like there is, w when we cede our power to the higher beings, whether it's religious leaders or politicians or the heads of corporations, it's, it's, it fails to realize that the real power comes within. And I think that's why I've, I've been so resistant to the idea that the government's going to save us. Because I don't think the government's going to save us any more than, than your Catholic God is going to save you if you've gone around, you know, harming people your whole life. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a Christian, so I probably got, you know, probably taking somebody else there, you know, off there. But the, the point being that when we cede control and we say, oh, these powerful people will save us or destroy us, I feel like it takes a lot of personal responsibility away from the individual. And I think even if we did have a perfect political system in run, it still comes down to you, which is actually the opposite of statism, the volunteerism. It still comes down to you treating people the right way or taking care of people in the way that doesn't matter what the politicians or whatever say, this person needs this help right now. And even if my medical license is going to be at stake here, I got to do the right thing. And I feel like that's, I, I know that you agree with that, but how do we reconcile those two things? You know, it's, I think that's where, 
I think that's really where the where the the magic happens. Yeah, I think that those are two different conversations. So personal responsibility, I'm I'm all for, right? Like I do I go surf in really dangerous waves and I certainly it's it's very important that when you go into a dangerous situation like that, you're not uh, um absolving any personal responsibility. It, just psychologically moving into a dangerous situation it's it's very important that you decide beforehand that you're doing it on your own volition and no matter what happens you're taking responsibility for the outcome because then if you fall on a wave the size of a six-story building and you get plunged to the depths of the ocean you do not want your thought to be well, fuck that other guy for taking me out here. I never wanted to do this in the first place. You need to think, I want to be here. This is, I'm taking full responsibility for my actions. So I think that as a way to alleviate psychological suffering, taking that radical ownership is very important. Yeah, And owning up to it when we blow it. Hey, I'm sorry. That's, I think that that's also how you can acquire you know you can gain the respect of others is by taking full responsibility for yourself yeah so i am very much of the mindset just for my own time here on earth that i want to take responsibility right period right i think that when it comes to so that's one conversation that i heard you touch on i think the second is how do you live in a society that is not being run by sociopathic corporations Mm. because it's like that line show me the incentive and i'll show you the outcome the incentive for most companies is to make as much money as possible no matter what serve the shareholders yeah for the shareholders and it's only when enough customers or enough shareholders start saying uh you know i don't actually want to be a part of this company that or I don't want to give you my money, that they'll start making that change. And that's that's why largely a lot of companies are making more uh, pushes for being environmentally conscious, or at least marketing themselves yeah, as being yeah. more environmentally conscious. It's so that they can acquire more wealth. I believe that a problem that we have is that companies have really good marketing teams and you know, local representatives and local uh, elections, like they don't actually know how to market themselves in a way that gets people to understand what they're really talking about. So, but what I go back to is that you have a company that has a single bottom line and they're going to do whatever it takes to get that bottom line at the expense of a healthy community. So a great example of this is, is meta, which, uh, or Facebook, Facebook which yeah. I fucking, I fucking hate. I think that they're the perfect example of a company that has made ungodly amounts of money at the expense of society. If you look at teen suicides, if you look at our inability to communicate with each other, um, having respectful discourse, it's gone down the drain. Society is a worse place now because of of Facebook. There's a really good article in uh, The Atlantic. It's a small tangent by a guy named Jonathan Haidt who wrote um, The Coddling of the American Mind. 
and it's called the Tower of Babel. And it's this very well written article on the breakdown of communication in society due to Facebook. Now, one way to think about this is that we don't allow um, casinos on every corner in your neighborhood. There are zoning laws to decide, okay, well, we know that casinos are this thing that makes a, they make a lot of money, but they're not necessarily good for society. So we're going to create some some laws around where we put casinos. I believe that, and that's for the good of the public. I think that you could do the same thing for more cor- corporations that we know have a, a damaging effect on yeah. society, like social media. And I think that the only mechanism to put that in place is government regulation. Yeah. I don't know if we totally agree there. I mean, like this is such a complicated topic. It's and there's no right answer. I want anybody who's listening. I mean, this is what conversation looks like. This is what we're actually not doing a lot of. And within the healthcare space, like I, I had just pulled up a couple numbers. You know, we we think about the banks and we think about the bad government and this and that. We think about big pharma, Purdue setting us off on this opioid crisis. By the way, there was just eight and a half kilos of fentanyl confiscated at the uh, Louisville airport just down the road from me, which eight and a half kilos, guys, is uh, is about as much fentanyl you would probably ever need for the rest of the history of the planet. I mean, that is, we give it in micrograms and that's a, a microgram is a thousand, a thousandth, a millionth of a gram. And this is eight and a half kilos. So just wanted to digress there. I mean, like it became a huge problem due to a lack of checks and balances over a company like Purdue Pharma. But even nowadays, we still think pharmaceutical companies are down and, you know, take them down, whatever else. But we forget about hospitals. You know, the UPMC, my hometown in Pittsburgh, UPMC president and CEO Jeffrey Romoff made $10 million in revenue. And I'll tell you why I'm telling you this in a second. And then, uh, Greg Adams is the sitting executive vice vice president and group and, and group president of Kaiser Health, three point one million dollars last year. These are two organizations that advertise themselves as important to the public health, which they're hospitals, of course they are. Um, UPMC is the largest hospital system in the world now, I think, and Kaiser's probably a close you know close behind them. But the, they advertise themselves as nonprofits. They're not paying any taxes on any of the land that they u- utilize for any of their buildings. They get huge tax breaks that they can give out to their executive members, including the physicians that they employ. And um, although physicians are not getting um, $3 million a year, um, certainly not $10 million a year. So I guess th- when I was talking to Kelly Brogan recently in my podcast, she and I were riffing on the fact that doctors, doctors alone, there's a certain personality type that gets into medicine. It's people that like to think they can control elements of their environment, right? If I get the right metrics, I can fix any and polish up any of your organ systems and make you better. So they naturally are people who like to have protocols and procedures. They, they're sort of self-selected, me included, to want to have appropriate guidelines in order to provide population health. Um, I would say the same goes for these big, giant corporations. So even if... And again, I'm playing devil's advocate here. Even if we had regulations and rules put into place that prohibited a nonprofit hospital system that employs more people than than anybody in like at least the northeastern chunk of the United States. I mean, it is a massive operation with something like 18 hospitals now. 
even if we changed the parameters of how government oversight interacts with these giant corporations, will we still end up with somebody who put in the same conditions with the same context and the same power and resources? Would they still end up operating the company in the same way? And that's where you know Charles Eisenstein talked a lot. He he talked a lot about this in uh, the the more beautiful world you know your heart's the more beautiful world your heart knows is possible. If and he conjectures that if you were put in the same scenario as somebody else, you would not have acted differently because it self-selects for that person. So if you get there, you're going to out operate the same way. So how do we reconcile that? Like, do we have to see a shrinking of the corporations so that there's a better self-selection process whereby you get the new Jeffrey Romoff at the top of UPMC? And he's like, I'm going to take $1 per year and I'll take my, my, my tax credits and that'll be my salary. How do we actually justify that? Now, I also want to peel into, you're a part of a, of a growing company now. How have you seen the culture of Mudwater contrast with what you see happening in these giant, large corporations? We're no different. We're no different. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, no, man, down with I, Mudwater. I <laughs> down with Mudwater. Down with the Mud. They're winning a motherfucker award. No, they actually support, they were one of the few companies that supported the motherfucker awards. Uh, they because everyone else was too big of pansies to become sponsors of our show. They just got brownie uh, Mud, points from me. <laughs> Mud was one of the few. No, well, to, to answer your first question, no, dude, I don't think that it's about a, a better self selection process because even if you got some great altruistic person as the CEO of. JP Morgan Chase, and they went on a weekend trip to Peru and had an ayahuasca experience. And they <laughs> decided, oh my God, we we can't be funding all this dirty energy. This is killing our species. They would be, uh, you know, the board would listen to them very quietly and respectfully. And then he would get a letter um, uh, the next day that say, <laughs> um, yeah, you, you have uh, the option to resign uh, by next week. So I don't think that it's about any one person making the change or even any group of people, because again, you're you're put into an environment where all the incentive structures are pointing towards making the most amount of money any way possible. Mm. So the only way that you can do that is by having corporate fines and laws be high enough that it becomes a financial decision. And that's that's what we have for a lot of these companies where you have environmental regulation, where if you like, for example, I mean, here's you know, great example with, with the company that I work at, Mudwater, right? Like if we get caught using ingredients in our products that we're not saying are actually in there, we could get these massive fines. So it's I mean, and I have a lot to say about about the FDA, which is its own, you know, uh, juggernaut in itself. But go for it if you want. <laughs> you'd love that, I'm sure. We <laughs> we hi- but yeah, you know, we hire multiple people at Mudwater who uh, their whole job is to make sure that what we're saying is not a lie, and that's not necessarily because we're all great conscious people at the company. It's it's because we are under a legal requirement to do that. So I think that, again, the problem comes back to when you have companies that are big enough that they can influence elections so that then the politicians are creating laws to benefit the corporations and not the people. That's right. where you run into the right. problem. So right. again, I think that the the action of 
of the people is to be engaging on that level of how campaigns are financed. And there's a lot of interesting stuff that's happening right now. Like it's, it's not some necessarily some far off future. If you look at Alaska, for example, like they've they've implemented in certain areas this thing called the voucher system, where every person gets, um, I believe it's like four hundred dollars that you can only spend to fund uh, your election. So what what ends up happening is that people are now politicians are now vying for voters and voters' money that is allowing them to fund their campaign. So that totally changes the incentive structure for that politician that's going into office. So again, I think that that's where the tweak can happen. And yeah, I mean, that's, it. That's uh, yeah. So I don't think that it's about, about good people coming in. Um, but I do think that on a, on a personal level, taking radical responsibility for yourself and I think the emotion uh, and quality of courage is lacking greatly in our right. society. I right. think that people very much in within companies don't speak up because they're afraid of getting fired. Yeah. And that is there is an element of personal responsibility within the workforce. Uh, yeah. People who are yeah. willing to be the only voice in the room because that really can galvanize change. Yeah if you are willing to sit in that fire and be uncomfortable. Yeah. I think that to put on like a libertarian hat for a second, cause I, I read quite a bit about this. Like I'm reading about constitutional law and, you know, sort of the, like going back to the beginning of the conversation while we were all learning stuff in school, could our social studies class or whatever they called it for 12 years, could we have actually talked about how campaigns run like the real governance over the United States and the history from 1776 or even before all the way up to present day. Like, I feel like it would be so helpful. And, and to put on my libertarian hat, uh, a lot of these books I'm reading are written by libertarians or maybe, maybe they wouldn't consider themselves libertarian. Maybe they'd consider themselves anarcho-capitalists yeah. like that one guy you had on your show. I don't know. But whenever, uh, I put it's a cowboy. It's a cowboy hat, by the way. A libertarian hat is a cowboy with, hat. Yeah, with like a giant feather, like a peacock feather. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> nature, nature rewards courage. And if you're going to wear a peacock feather in your hat, you got to have some courage. So uh, what I'm thinking is, if if the issue at the heads of these big, giant corporations, including the hospital systems I just mentioned, is that, hey, they can't regulate themselves. We are fortunate to have these government uh uh, bodies in place to legislate over how money is spent, the destruction they're doing to communities or to the environment, whatever. I think a lot of people would then argue, and we don't have to actually go further on this, but I, you got me very thoughtful about that, that the the U.S. government sort of works in the same way, where if you don't vote in the way that, or if you come back from Peru, like you're some really progressive liberal, or let's say you're conservative. Uh, let's say Mitch McConnell. Let's take Mitch McConnell. He comes back from Peru after his ayahuasca journey. And he's like, guys, it's not cool to be racist anymore. And it's not cool to take away reproductive rights. I want to see a change. The shareholders, which you could, it's not really the same as a corporate structure, but he's going to be booted as quickly as anybody out there. Like this guy is not talking our language anymore. Get him the hell out. We got to bring in some the new version of Mitch McConnell. Um, I feel like that's at play within the government that's meant to be regulating this type of these types of behaviors there. So I think that people who lose hope in the government maybe I fall into this crowd. I don't know. 
it just seems like it's a giant truck stuck in the mud and there's no way of getting those wheels to grip anything. It just seems like it's like, oh my God, we're not making any progress despite us all seeing the, you know, like the, the sky is falling outside of our windows and we're like, you know, what was that movie? Uh, Don't look up or whatever. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of feels like that where it's like, nobody's doing anything. It doesn't matter what data comes about. It doesn't matter what, you know, Mudwater's doing or Patagonia has done over the years. It's like, let's just keep this, this train going. And it, it almost seems like it's impossible to stop it. So we don't have to keep going on this. On this yeah, no, it's a good, it's an interesting point, which what I'm hearing is, you know, how is the government any different? It, it, it already has its own incentive structures. And if Mitch McConnell, who, by the way, won the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Motherfucker Awards. <laughs> Mitch the bitch, yeah. <laughs> Mitch the bitch. How would that? How would that be any different? And I think it's totally a fair point. Your analogy about the truck stuck in the mud is perfect. I think that the that people generally spend way too much time thinking about national politics and not enough thinking about local politics. One thing I I know that that you and I agree on is this idea of think global, act local. Yeah. What is it that you can do in your within your family, within your neighborhood, within your town? that will make it better. Yeah. And I ask people sometimes like do you know who your local mayor is? Do you know who's on your city council? Because it actually doesn't take that many people to shift those elections and get the ear of those politicians. Those are the kinds of politicians that you can actually fucking sit down with and have lunch with right. if you really want to. And those are the policies they're ultimately going to have the biggest effect and most immediate effect on your life. Yeah. 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 So I think that that's a way to not just get completely overwhelmed. And I think that it may be a place where we can merge this idea of governance with individual responsibility. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I, and I also want to say, you know, I, we just, I just bashed on Mitch McConnell. I also think like Mitch McConnell probably has Thanksgiving dinner with his family. He's probably a very reasonable person who is, I mean, I don't know. Maybe uh, he's a sociopath oh, for sure. Sociopath. He doesn't. Okay. He does on 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 Thanksgiving. He's for sure in some dark cave, and there's lots of <laughs> blood paintings and goats' heads, and fucking <laughs> Slayer playing. That's what he does it in his downtime. He's just whipping his hair around. Yeah. yeah. Just what what little hair he has left, he's whipping around. <laughs> well, I'm glad mm. that he was at least honored at your uh, prestigious awards ceremony. Yeah. Anyways. Um, yeah, that's really funny. So, so you, you know, you, you've been rubbing all those with some incredible journalists. Let's talk a little bit about your adventure into journalism because a part of activism also, you started to be inspired with writing and you know, we're not drifting too far from this topic, but as you're, as you started, you, you know, if you read the New York times, for example, I remember when I was a kid, there was always a newspaper open, like we really trusted those writers and now we've seen the media start to slip a little bit and there's a lot there's a lack of integrity perhaps even from journalists and i remember it may have been your interview with matt i, I don't recall but he was talking about the you know like the rachel maddows of the world like you go and say something that's completely tr untrue but it was based on some little tip that was whispered in your ear and then you doubled down on that later so then there's these matt taibbi journalists who are like you know Back in the day, if you wrote something that was untrue, it would completely shatter your career. You're never going to get published ever again. But that has changed. So we've got the Matt, Matt Tybees, the Glenn Greenwalds. Was that your motivation as, as, a, as a truth seeker and a, an explorer of some of these concepts that, hey, I can actually 
own what I write and put it down on paper and hit send. And I can feel good about that. And that's the small thing that you're, that you're doing, which hopefully gets to be much bigger. Yeah. I, I started writing maybe eight or nine years ago for a, a local magazine called Santa Cruz Waves. And one of the first articles I wrote was uh, titled, The End of the Ride is Pro Surfing a Dead-End Career. Mm. I think the first lines were, most of my friends are or have been professional surfers. Given this situation, it's deeply uncomfortable for me to talk about this subject. However, I will go on as honestly as possible. And the rest of the article laid out that a lot of people spend all their time surfing and chasing these small paychecks from companies and then end up 35 years old without a sponsor and zero job experience. And I see right. I see a lot of people who uh who end up with that life and then don't necessarily know how to transition out of surfing because not only do they not have skills in the workforce, but they also um have their whole identity wrapped up in being a pro surfer, which is a very um it's a dangerous place to be psychologically um and i've know so many people who have spiraled out into drugs or just stagnated in this teenage version of themselves for the rest of their lives um oftentimes they become very resentful um very close-minded and i think it's a real miss of a life to think that all the value that you can provide to the world is in how well you can get barreled on a wave. So I I wrote that article and a lot of people got mad and a lot of people said I'm so grateful that you just said it like it like it is because I was in a, new, a unique position in that I was also and technically still am a professional surfer to be able to speak from that vantage point and and have a medium where I could really think about what I wanted to say and not have it be just extemporaneous, right? Like this is the first draft of our conversation. <laughs> yeah. if, if I went back through all of my answers right now, I'd probably have some editing to do. But in an, an article, you really get to condense your thought and say exactly what you fucking mean. Yeah. And that was such a special experience for me. Yeah. Such a special experience. Oh my God. Um, it just felt like it it spoke to everything that I wanted more of in my life, um, which was saying what I meant, seeking outside of myself, articulating myself more impeccably, hmm. and having fun. Like I that's I think that writing is just a really fun experience for me. So that was the first article that kind of kicked kicked me off. That was the first um, blackjack game that got me addicted, so to speak. <laughs> and I've just, uh, from there, spent a, a huge amount of my time over the past few years writing. It's what got me the job at Mudwater. My current job right now is head of editorial. Um, and we have launched our own storytelling platform called Trends with Benefits. People can go to trendswithbenefits.com. To check out all of our stories on psychedelics, well-being, the human experience. So the the beat that I've been on over the past year has really been a, around psychedelic therapy mm. and the ability to to use the mechanism of journalism and storytelling to 
hurl myself into that world has just been great. It's just been great. And I agree with you for sure. Media has become more untrustworthy due to corporate dollars. And I think also due to journalists wanting to be popular with their peers. This is what Matt Taibbi talks a lot about is that there's a culture of people who want to just be liked by politicians, by the people they write about, by their their coworkers. And what Matt talks about, and I really have taken this to heart, is uh, he says journalists should be a pains in the ass. Mm. Like journal, if you're a journalist, you should not be agreeable all the time. You should always be, as Chris Ryan says, questioning the premise. Yeah, and you you have the the responsibility to your readers to be looking for truth and to be calling out bullshit and calling people out. Um, and I think that that just temperamentally also speaks to it speaks to me and it speaks to the kind of person that I want to be. I, I always want to have more a deeper relationship to truth and popularity. Yeah. Yeah. How was it? You mentioned that, you know, you're, you're on this bend, you know, right now about psychedelics and you're not yet a dad. And of course you're not a woman who would have given birth, which is for some people, uh, they, they really compare it to the psychedelic experience. Like it, un, it's a spiritual transformation unlike anything else, but you can get a fast track using, um, especially psychedelic, the classical psychedelics, but also MDMA offers quite a bit of promise for a lot of things. How is your experience with those things? And if you don't want to share what you've actually done or, or whatever else, no, how has that changed you? I've uh, done, you know, I've, I've used ayahuasca maybe a dozen times, used LSD and mushrooms and MDMA, both within more therapeutic contexts and more uh, recreational contexts, like being at Burning Man at some radical concert, which also you could argue has its therapeutic benefits. Yeah. That's true. I think that psychedelics have made allowed me to step outside of what feels like a big deal on a day-to-day basis. There's there's kind of just a memory or an insight that comes from how how fucking silly it is what we're doing here. Like <laughs> we we we've won, dude. We're we're getting our job is to talk bullshit to each other or <laughs> get, write about things that are interesting to us or just yeah. help other people like on on the grand scale of things this is all a pretty big joke so why not be right more courageous and actually go for what we really want you know i, I think that so many people hold themselves back because the day-to-day problems that they face feel like such a big deal and they can't just step outside of it. I think that psychedelics can provide that shift in context and give away, give way to a little bit more um, bravery on, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. So I'd like to think that my psychedelic experiences have helped me in that way. Um, and I think that they've also given me insight into this idea that I can have a a great successful career just by flexing the muscle of curiosity rather than needing the spotlight on me all the time. Right. Um, I, I think that, that growing up I had, and still do to some extent, like this kind of yearning for attention and yearning to be seen and appreciated. Um, it's definitely still there, but I think that I've, I remember once really getting hit with that insight. I was doing LSD 
on top of this beautiful mountain in Big Sur. And there were these fractals coming across the ocean. Mm. And I could just see the power of um, connecting people and how that spider web into the world in ways that you can't possibly ever appreciate. And if you're coming at this idea of needing success through being the center of attention all the time, it's this very constricted um, energy. Whereas if you can just connect people, if you can ask questions and just continue to focus on that, it can have such a greater and more elegant impact on the world. So that's one specific insight that came Mm -hmm. to me from psychedelics. Yeah. Well, I I hope that when you someday, if you decide to become a father and and whatnot, um, I do think that being able to see behind the veil and to get out of just this physical kind of day in, day out, day out rat race, whenever you're sitting with something as important as birth or death, which is my other specialty, it really helps give you some perspective going into that. And whether it's birth or especially death, not knowing what's behind the veil is a pretty scary thing. I mean, that's another way of saying facing your own mortality, that you've got a limited time here. And I do think that your activism, your, your activistic work within environmental protection and whatnot is also probably benefited from that in more subtle ways. But whenever you realize like, oh shit, we actually do have a very limited time here. There is actually some finite nature to the human experience, knowing that, hey, it may not be that bad going through that, that portal. So why don't we embrace this and, and live more, laugh more, love more? Perhaps that's, <laughs> perhaps that's part of the solution. Although I don't know if a psychopath at the top of UPMC uh, or, or at, you know, within our government, Mitch McConnell, whatever else, I don't know if they necessarily would get from that or be open to that, to the surrender that happens whenever you have a, a psychotropic medic, you know, medicine like that going through your system. But it does help you see that you're actually a part of something greater and that just your bottom end to make as much money as possible at whatever cost, actually is not all that relevant to the bigger you know, scheme of things. I just think that we've become so conditioned to think that like, tomorrow's another day. I got my, gotta get my stuff now. I gotta be productive. If you can look past the veil for just a moment, it's like whenever people take MDMA and they have, they have a breakthrough, they see cl- that it's not just overcast anymore. For They get a glimpse of the sunshine through the clouds and that might be enough for them to pick the pieces back up and to move forward. I mean, these, these medicines are super powerful and obviously we don't have time to go into, into more, more into this, but I, I can totally understand how that would provide you with some perspective that actually helps you carry your work forward. And I'm, I'm really excited, man, to see where you're writing and where your podcast and, and, and everything in between, um, as it evolves. And whenever you get, pre- you know, you're, you and your partner get pregnant someday and you reach out, I'll probably refer you back to those psychedelic experiences whenever you hit that, that place of fear when it's like, hey, you just got to let go and surrender to the process and everything else takes care of itself. I think that that will actually be, will help be helpful to you. Yeah, that's, that's cool, man. Well, it's, it's great to talk with you. You have such a wide range of, of interests. It makes podcasting um, very fun. Yeah. Well, it's my pleasure to have you. And um, we'll put all the links on the show. How else do you want people to find you? Yeah, they can go to uh, my Substack, tierman.substack.com. Um, that's where I post a lot of my writing as well as my podcast, um, release new episodes um, a couple times a week usually. And um, they can go to trendswithbenefits.com. That's the editorial program that I help run. Um, And 
we are doing some some journalism that I'm pretty darn proud of, really following the the psychedelic um, therapy beat and doing a lot of stories on wellness that you might have already heard of, but in a tone that uh, is yeah. funny and full of levity. Yeah. Right on. We'll, we'll check that out. Why is everybody going to Substack now? Is it like uncensored? It's on a different, it's a different platform where you can kind of write what you, what you want. Yeah. It's un, it's uncensored. So you don't really need to worry about getting taken down. And it's also just a really great platform for yeah. your community to be able to engage. So rather than having the podcast go out and people not really having a place where they can talk about it, Substack's a pretty good format for that kind of uh, community building. Oh, cool. Maybe I'll check it out for my yeah. show. Yeah. Thank you, Kyle. I hope you catch some waves today, if that's on the agenda, or at least you drink some more of that mud, that mud water. Um, we'll get everything in the show notes for everybody. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. This is a very fun conversation. Yeah, likewise. Alza la frente en alto y camina bien. Alza la frente en alto. Alza la frente en alto y camina. Alza la frente en alto. Alza la frente en alto y camina bien. Alza la frente en alto. Well, that was amazing. Thank you, Kyle, for spending some time with me. I'll put all of Kyle's links. Um, Kyle Tiermans, T H I E R M A N N. You can type in his name. You'll get his website, his Substack. He's also writing for the Trends for Benefits blog at Mudwater, his new employer. And um, he's got an awesome, awesome podcast. So I'll link everything in the description below. One of the big topics, of course, that kind of threaded through our conversation was the role of personal responsibility in improving the world at large. And from my standpoint, that is easily transcribable to personal responsibility um, in the care for women, um, especially through the birthing process. So if you want to avoid uh, a hospital birth, if you want to avoid diabetes, hypertension, if you want to speed up postpartum recovery, speed up your labor, decrease the likelihood of a really bad laceration, delayed wound healing, delayed pelvic healing, etc., as, as well as giving your baby the best shot of a healthy life, which starts in utero through epigenetic program programming. I can't um, emphasize enough how important the two sponsors are for the show, Fit for Birth, James Goodlatte's program. I interviewed him on the podcast. Check that episode out. I believe it was episode 60. Um, check that out because he provides comprehensive exercise coaching for women. Um, and if you're a health coach out there, you can get coaching for yourself as a coach so that you can do what James teaches all of his amazing coaches to do. Go to Get Fit for Birth. That's G-E-T-F-I-T-F-O-R-B-I-R-T-H.com slash beloved. And you'll go to my personal page. And through that link, you can save 20% on all of Get Fit for Births offerings. And then of course, Fullwell Fertility, my good friend Ayla over at Fullwell, they make the best prenatal vitamins. They make vitamins to help with male infertility factor, making healthy sperm, more sperm, better moving sperm, better shaped sperm in order to facilitate you on your conception journey. Um, and they have a Nourish Nerves tonic, which will help calm the nervous system, help you relax into sleep, etc. You can get all of their products at fullwellfertility.com. Use code BELOVED10. You'll save 10%. Support our sponsors, guys, because they really keep the show running. And I, I can't, I, I'm so grateful to have two companies that are in such alignment with what I do. The reason I, I mentioned the personal responsibility bit is these are the mechanisms in order to optimize your pregnancy and optimize your recovery from a pregnancy in order to make things go as smoothly as possible. If you want to exercise your sovereignty over birth, it starts with how you take care of your body. 
So that's that. That was that was a fun episode. Um, you can find me at BelovedHolistics.com. Remember, nothing here on the podcast is medical advice. It should not be construed as medical advice. It is educational. It is informational. And it's entertaining, I hope. <laughs> so find me at BelovedHolistics.com. I work one-on-one with clients in order to optimize their health through uh, a wide variety of lifestyle factors, but also through some energetic practices as well. I also work with couples. I work with new fathers. I do it all. And I I want you to have as much information and support as possible in your pregnancies. You can find me there for one-on-one coaching. I also have a collaborator program. If you're a birth coach, if you're a childbirth educator, if you're a lifestyle coach, check practitioner, midwife, doula, whatever, and you find that it would be helpful to have a regular consultant, an MD consultant with an open mind, open heart, and who wishes to try everything before we turn to synthetic pharmaceuticals and surgery, I might be your guy. I can help keep your clients out of the system, help help feeling help them feel empowered to make decisions in their birth and help their home birth go off with a hitch um, or a hospital birth go off with a hitch for that matter. So you can find me there at my collaborator program. It's all at belovedholistics.com. I also have a weekly newsletter. It's a lovely little practice I have every Monday or Tuesday. I'll send out a little newsletter to all of my followers. There's a free ebook, which is five guiding principles for empowered healing and birthing on your own terms. So Um, You'll get that if you subscribe to the newsletter. And thank you for supporting the podcast. I'll see you next time on The Holistic OBGYN. Take care, everybody.